Welcome to Ordinary Fellowship, a podcast inspired by the Puritan practice of godly conference or spiritual conversations among believers. These spiritual conversations offer practical spiritual help for Christian living. I'm Jeremy Lee, and with me as always is Matthew McLaughlin. Good morning, Jeremy. And uh, Matthew doesn't know this, but in 2022, I am nominating him to be the president of the SBC, if there is an SBC in 2022. That would be a unique election. <laughs> and then if he succeeds at that, then 2024, he's going to be running as an independent for president of the United States. I don't think I would win that one. <laughs> well, especially if you're an independent. Well, this is also true. Yeah, you got to be one of the two parties. Or... This is true. Although, maybe by then we'll have ranked choice voting and things will be better off. Uh, but that's well... another conversation for another day. <laughs> Yeah, let's let's not talk about SBC politics or uh, American politics today, okay? That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> today we're going to talk about hopefully two things. Gene Veith, I can't remember his title, and, and I know he taught at Patrick Henry College for a long time, but uh, he's a Lutheran, one of my favorite Lutheran authors. He writes a lot of good stuff. He recently wrote a book called Post-Christian, A Guide to Contemporary Thought and Culture. And he also has a blog called Cranach. It's on Patheos. And of course, we'll put a, when we share the episode, we'll put a link up uh, to both the articles of his we're going to uh, talk about today. Um and they're both along the same subject. Uh, the first one is, is secularism crumbling? And uh, sec- by secularism, we mean, well, there's a lot of ways of understanding it, but what we're, we're talking about is a world that is a view that sees this world as being all that there is. Okay? And so everybody would be living for this world and not for another world, a spiritual world, an internal world, or anything like that. It's the here and now, the present, and that's uh, the most important. Most elites probably would be in this secular category. And, and frankly, there are even some people who would profess to be Christians or believers of another faith who are, for all intents and purposes, secular because they're Christianity or their whatever the other faith may be doesn't really inform how they live in this world except when it's convenient. I won't name any names, but you you probably uh, understand what I'm talking about. Veith is arguing in this article. He actually is quoting a European evangelist named J. John, and J. John. He notes growing numbers, a million over the last few years, attending his evangelistic events. He notes burgeoning number of evangelicals in France from 50,000 a few years ago to 700,000. He cites a large number of conversions to Christianity among Muslim immigrants. He focuses, though, on the sense he's picking up on that secularism is failing and that the secularists are realizing it. He and Veith as well are seeing 
that secularism is showing signs of weakness, showing signs of faltering, and of course they're they believe that's an overall positive thing. We're not going to be triumphalistic or anything, <laughs> but they they see these things as positive signs, and especially these numbers in France are surprising. Surprising, given that France has essentially always been a not always, but but since the French Revolution has been uh, a secular state, and for so many believers to be there is very telling. They're asking the question, is secularism crumbling? And then, and the answer seems to be yes. Now, we'll get back to some surveys that seem to contradict that idea in a little bit. That's what is feast other article is about but j john gives five examples of the failures of secularism which i think are good and thought we might be able to talk about for a little have some interaction about right so the first one he says is a failure of explanation he says secularism promised to explain everything by means of science but the biggest questions remain unanswered Life, consciousness, and even the universe itself remain mysteries. Thinking people are finding secularism barren and unsatisfactory. So, the promise of science seemed to be an explanation for everything, uh, but we're into this project for several hundred years now, and the science has not found <laughs> the answer to everything, and even... Like he says, some of the biggest ones don't have an answer. Or or it's not that they don't have an answer, but they're mysteries. They're not sure. They're not certain. And they're still digging. So there's a failure of explanation, failure of ethics. Secularism cannot function as a moral guide into the void or rushing politics, racism, wokeness, brutality, and ideological correctness. Human beings cannot live that way for long. Just think of cancel culture. That's the idea of wokeness. and Brutality is not far, but I mean, we've seen that already. Things that have happened in Charlottesville where people were running over other people with cars. At least one person was killed. The Antifa encourages violence. They call everybody fascists and that, that doesn't agree with them and then call for people to punch fascists. I think as if secularism continues and a new path isn't chosen, uh, that violence and brutality is only only going to get worse. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you. I think these two things tie together in that sense that secularism can't exp answer the big questions. And so if you can't answer the big questions, then you struggle to come up with an ethic or a social mores, a ways to understand and interpret what's going on and what's right and what's wrong. One of the things we can talk about more, but we've talked about it before, but I think the overarching idea behind this is, or it goes back to, I think, Carl Truman, just the idea that when you have a subject, when you create, when you make truth subjective, and you don't have an objective standard of truth, which is what secularism does, because it 
doesn't it places the focus of truth the, the explanation is more in the individual than it is in an, something outside of the individual then these these are the results these are the problems that you get and so you you can't answer big questions because every time you answer the question you end up with just another series of questions because you always get more questions and those questions then lead you to these ethical considerations but in those considerations you don't have the answers to the big questions that guide you to come with your ethics so everybody's ethics is a little bit different and so ultimately what happens we would argue is that we we turn to our sin nature and sin nature is seeking power and control and because we want to get what we can get and so our ethics breaks down so we end up towards greed and violence and brutality and all of those things that right. doesn't give, provide the answer if if there's not an overarching ethic for everybody and everybody does what's right in their own eyes then that's going to lead to fragmentation and fighting right and so that's what we see and so we just see this consistent where i mean all you have to do is take some time and you know think through your life you can see how different people look at a situation and to some people things that are unimaginably horribly terrible other people go and eh, no big deal well and and you can't even you know normally you say well we can settle this by reason but some people believe that reason is a is white supremacy so right right <laughs> so you're using your white supremacist standards of reason to oppress people who see things differently so even that we can't agree on as a solution as a way to come up with the solution so that just leaves us with the struggle for power which uh <laughs> right leads right. to fighting right. and violence right i mean it's just i would read another book and in the book there was this illustration and talks about how this there was an article a few years ago this woman basically makes the argument that veganism is a ethical consideration because ultimately it she f argues for the fact that to be a vegan is to be a feminist because you have to protect the female cows to protect the female animals because they're being oppressed well i'm just going to be honest i'm pretty sure i can speak for jeremy that's not entering into our ethics we're just going to eat the hamburger <laughs> but and that's the problem we when and that's that's just a silly example but for us to understand and we can think all you have to do is spend time listening to the news and you can find example after example of people who their ethic isn't grounded in something outside of themselves and so it, it's anything goes. Yeah. Even though there is still a veneer of ethics and societal expectations, it's just a veneer. Right. Until people eventually realize this is just a veneer. Right. I can do whatever I want. Right. And there are a few things that are still supposedly taboo, but without getting too graphic, you can see even those things are slowly eroding away. The things that would be unimaginable now, those growing percentages of people who now think, well, maybe that's not bad. And so that, that leads to the next failure. It's the failure of expectation. The optimistic utopianism that secularists began with has morphed into cynicism and pessimism. I think 
Everything Matthew said just fits into that category and tells you why it would end up in cynicism and pessimism. Yeah. And and we see this even with the recent pandemic. People are cynical about the motivations of politicians, or they're cynical about their other people in their community who don't want to wear masks or get vaccines, and so it leads to further problems. Right. Expectations of secularism have failed. Right. I mean, all you have to do is you look at the stats. You so you look at suicide stats between fifteen to twenty-four year olds pre-pandemic from two thousand eight to two thousand seventeen. They had increased by two hundred and fifty percent year over year. They jumped another hundred and eighty percent just last year. The stats now say from the National Institutes of Health, the stats even say that one in 10, 15 to 24 year olds will attempt suicide in their life. Why does this occur? Because ultimately we have a epidemic of loneliness and hopelessness. And that's because I would argue that's because ultimately We've bought into this is what this is where secularism leads you because back to where we started this conversation, it can't answer the big questions. And if you can't answer the big questions, you're going to end up in hopelessness. hopelessness. And so that's why there's hopelessness everywhere. And you just see the ramifications of what that looks like. You're doing very good at segueing into the next (laughs) thing. Good job, Matthew. I do what I can. (laughs) So, So he's segueing right into the next one, which is the failure of empowerment says secularism has left people with a sense of their powerlessness, which is ironic because the main idea of secularism today is the will to power uh, from our friend Nietzsche. Yes. This is the one thing that's left is our will to power, yet people feel powerless against forces that are beyond their control. I mean, all you got to do is <laughs> think of politics and how powerless uh, we feel to actually change anything. And, of course, powerlessness leads to hopelessness and cynicism and pessimism uh, that we already talked about. So this is a real huge failure. Right. I mean, we'll talk about it again in a couple minutes in the other article, but... All you have to do is you see you see this desire for empowerment by the rise of horoscopes and tarot cards and all these other things and all these things people want to read and even even to the point where you get into like the secret and manifestation and speaking truth into reality and all of this it's just people want these answers they want to feel like they're in control and yet ultimately they ne- they can never get there because no matter what they do there's there's a force stronger and more powerful than them. And again, we would argue that that ultimately means that there's a cause outside of themselves and that they need to rest in that cause, which is God, as opposed to everything else. But you can see how the desire that they have for empowerment, which in a certain way segues into the last one, which is the failure for excitement of excitement. No one sings, flies banners, or holds festivals about secularism. It is the dullest, driest, and most depressing of beliefs. <laughs> and I don't know if I'm disagreeing with this point, but John Lennon's song Imagine 
uh, is actually a song about <laughs> secular <laughs> secular humanism. This is true. But, you know, the terrible thing about that song, and there's a lot of terrible things about that song, but it's such a beautiful melody, and even though I know the lyrics are horrid, I still find myself singing it when I hear it on the radio. Because the melody, the music, it, it's all very beautiful. But what it's preaching is not beautiful at all. It leads to all these things. He's preaching that the world will be a better place if it's secular, if we get rid of religion, if we get rid of national loyalty, if we get rid of private property, then the world will just be at one and everybody will be happy. And, and Lennon was singing this in the late 70s, early 80s. There may have been more optimism then, but obviously there's great pessimism now. People don't talk like Lennon did. John Lennon, not Vladimir Lennon. <laughs> Although, I mean, yeah, <laughs> there we could compare the two. But even I've even listened to, I listened to a speech by Dwight Eisenhower, and really what Eisenhower was saying was not that far off from what Lenin was saying. It was more optimistic then, but now, we're not so optimistic. You don't hear bands getting together singing "We Are the World" and things like that anymore. There's obviously a great deal of cynicism and pessimism in the world and and you see the violence that's going on j john and gene veith are taking these as signs that secularism is starting to crumble it's not surprising i don't think to veith that these things would be happening in his book he actually uses an analogy from shakespeare about a wolf and i'm going to read just a little bit of this he says, for Shakespeare, the coming together of power, will, and appetite forms a universal wolf that devours everything. As we've been seeing in contemporary thought and culture, this wolf is eating up universities, laws, technology, the family, the arts, the media, the churches. But having done so, there comes a point, says Shakespeare, when the wolf starts eating itself up. He goes on to say, but when the universal wolf has finished devouring himself, his predation will be an end. Life might start to flourish again. And in V's book about post called Post Christian, he's optimistic about the future of what may happen. And we may be seeing some of that in the statistics that Mr. John reported at the beginning of their article where with conversions of Muslims to Christianity, so many believers in France go from fifty thousand to seven hundred thousand. That's not a that's not a small pickup. This universal wolf of secularism has eaten up everything in its path and it's led to the, all these failures uh, that John outlined and the wolf the wolf is now starting to devour itself. And it's going to eat itself alive. And then, hopefully, there's going to be something afterwards. What What is that going to be, and what is it going to look like, is really the big question. Before we answer that, 
Do you have anything, any other comments, Matthew, before we move on? Just that what we need to understand is most of what we see happening in the world, I, you can make the argument, CRT, all of this is simply an outworking of secularism. Yeah. So it, we, and we have to understand that. And so it's not that it, it's not all these things are not new things. They're just outworking of the old thing. And so that ultimately it's just the old thing trying to figure find find its footing because the footing it originally have the optimistic footing of Lenin and the 50s and the 60s that footing has crumbled so now it's trying to find a different footing but it's still the same thing and so that is so ultimately it awaits the same fate as, as V says you read in the book it awaits the fate of it destroying itself of eating itself and so but we so we have to understand that it's not like we're fighting some new monster. It's the same monster. It he just put on different a different set of clothes. Right. And this you're exactly right. This is modernism. Right. This is the logical conclusion of modernism and and the enlightenment and all those kind of things. This is this is just that working itself out and eventually eating itself alive. Um <laughs> So the next article is about, it's entitled, Don't Know, Don't Care, Don't Believe. And it says, according to new research, 43% of millennials aged 18 to 36 don't know, don't care, or don't believe that God exists. So all of these, all of these are lumped together, atheists, spiritually indifferent, and um, agnostics. They're all lumped into one part, and it finds that 43% of them um, either don't believe, don't care, or don't know whether there's a God or not. Um, and, and there's more stuff in there, but it, it, we can talk about those in a minute, Matthew. But Veith asks the question, does this growing spiritual apathy refute my contention that secularism is crumbling? And he answers, not at all. The indifference to religion is manifesting itself in a distinct moral decline, not just in contentious areas such as sex and abortion, but in kindness and benevolence. That is a worldview failure that seems to be getting worse. Then he goes on to talk about uh, statistics that show that millennials believe in aren't really secularists. Uh, because they believe in reincarnation, they get guidance from horoscopes uh, and things like that. Often, uh, they don't have a coherent worldview, but they're picking and choosing things from different philosophies, different religions, and bringing them together. So many of these millennials would be spiritual but not religious, which is not secular. <laughs> So, I think Veith is right. This doesn't ref these statistics don't refute the idea that secularism is uh, crumbling. In fact, what he's arguing is that the statistics actually show that secularism is in trouble. And he talks about the moral decline, and it's because they asked millennials if they hold to the golden rule, which is treat others as you would want them to treat you. Only forty-eight percent hold to that golden rule and compared with other generations that that's very low 
So millennials don't believe that you should treat others as you've been treated. It talks about tolerance and how millennials are not tolerant of other people or other points of views. So Veith is seeing these as the crumblings of secularism because they're they're not tolerant, which is which is an ideal or of of modernism or secularism, tolerance toward others, and basically everybody accepts the golden rule as true, but apparently millennials do not. And and it's obvious. I mean, you know, there are ideas. Millennials are turning against free speech because they see free speech as a as a way to oppress people or platforming people to so that they can oppress people. So they're opposed to free speech. They don't want to treat others as they want to be treated. They want to punch people in the face and call them fascists just because they disagree with them. These are problems for secularism. There's not a lot of people, I think, that are signing up for these things. Right. Maybe half the millennials, but that means the other half isn't. Yeah. <laughs> so Veith is arguing in this, even though the statistics may seem to suggest that secularism isn't crumbling, he's actually arguing that, yes, this is signs that it's failing uh, because toler- intolerance is growing and treating people kindly is no longer considered ethical in today's world. So I know you got thoughts about that, right, Matthew. I, I think I think this second article just reinforces everything we talked about in the first one. There's one paragraph, I mean, there's two paragraphs just to put out there just to read. And so what he says is, he says, in fact, anti-intellectualism, judgmentalism, and inhumane attitudes seem to be worse than in previous generations. All this in a climate of cultural and psychological malaise. The growing lack of interest in reproducing themselves and having children is also a sign of an overall hopelessness. But yet, what about our progress in overcoming racism, sexism, and poverty? What about our increased economic prosperity, scientific knowledge, and technological innovations? Those are indeed objectively notable achievements. Notice, notice though, that many activists are denying that we have actually made progress in any of these areas, insisting still that ours is a racist, sexist, and economically oppressive society, and that our economy, our science, and our technology are destroying the earth. So, <laughs> say, so what? basically, the argumentation from the secularists... The wolf is eating itself. Correct. <laughs> the wolf is eating itself. And I think that's just a good summation for us to understand, and... The one other piece before we transition to one other thing is, so how do we approach this? What does this tell us? I think what this speaks to us is, is this why it is so important that we understand that we have the answer for the problem of the world. And that answer has a name and his name is Jesus. And that Jesus is the hope of the world. And that so therefore... We have to, therefore, as Christians, rest in Jesus and trust Jesus and understand Jesus' and his words and then proclaim that and live that out so that in the midst of all this hopelessness, all these things that are seemingly from the secularist perspective going wrong, when we're not to the point where we're destitute and cynical and pessimistic, it provides us opportunity to explain why that is, and that is Jesus. Right. 
there's there's a lot to say about how we uh, approach this. I think I'll just leave it at that. Leave it at that. There's a there's a lot to be said. We don't have a lot of time to really right. talk about those issues. Um, maybe it's something we'll return to in the future. But one thing I think we need to do is we need we need to have a show the beauty of living in community and having an ethic whereby people who are different and there's and there's diversity among us can live together in harmony and peace where the world can't find that right so that, that's just one thought and uh which is a very good thought but it it in a way it might not be what you were thinking but in a way <laughs> it transitions to the last thing we want to talk about yes because you have a personal example of the effects of secularism. <laughs> well, I don't. It could just be some punks. Well, it could just be punks. <laughs> yeah, this is true. So, well, probably all of you that listen are friends on Facebook in in some way or another. I recently had some stuff stolen out of the back of my car, and I shared a post on Facebook, and I had a lot of people sympathetic, and. Uh, because uh, because these things were stolen, and I I appreciate the kind words that everybody shared with me, um, and I know a lot of some people expressed how awful people are, and obviously we're we believe in the total depravity of human beings, and uh, so people are people definitely are wicked sinners apart from Christ, and we affirm that, and you see it in the case where somebody is stealing. Uh, my book bag, uh, they, it looks like they ripped my Bible apart on purpose um, and, and threw it out the window or threw it down. I don't know if they were driving or walking, but anyway, um, so we, we do see the evil of humanity, but um, God brings good even out of evil, and, uh, and so one of, I just like to share that even in things like this, when bad things happen, it gives an opportunity for believers to show love to others. And I've experienced that. Several friends have um, have helped me replace some of the things that were um, taken out of my uh, car, and I, I'm thankful for that. And even the kind words that were expressed, while the world is filled with sinners. Um, every human being is created in the image of God, and there's a little bit of that image left. And so you always, even people who aren't necessarily Christian, there's there's some good in not saving good, but there's some good in them that is a reminder of the goodness of God. And especially in Christians, when these when these kind of things happen, and what happened to me wasn't really all that tragic. I mean, it was sad. I I lost things that were valuable to me, and in the Bible, you know, I you can replace it, but still, it was a gift to me from friends in the first place. And there's no way that you can replace that gift. There's always going to be a loss because it's not just that I lost the Bible; it's that I lost something that was special to me uh, because of who gave it to me. So you can't buy something else and replace that. But, you know, when you have 
so even though this wasn't that tragic, if it had been something even more tragic, these same people would have gathered around me and been just as encouraging as they were in this minor troubling issue. <laughs> if that's a good way to if that's a good way to phrase it. I guess this is Christianity has an answer for the evil we see in our world. It's loving one another, and when we see good in others, it reflects the goodness of our God. And God God redeems evil for good. He'll bring good out of the evil that's in this world, not just in, in this particular situation, but in the end of it all, when everything is wrapped up, however God is going to bring that about, he all the evil that exists in this world will be used for good. I Do I have all the answers to how all that works out? Not a chance. But because I know God is good, I know he's going to work, work it out all for good and for his glory and for our good as well. And so we can have hope even in the midst of political failure, whether it's denominational failures, whether it's uh, political failures in our nation, uh, violence that goes on. We, we have a hope beyond the here and now, a hope beyond the present, that we don't have to fall for being pessimistic and cynical because we have a good God who's going to take care of all of it. And secularism doesn't have that hope. Yep. That is a good word for us to remember as we come to conclusion of this episode. Love God. Love one another. Live in the hope of your calling. But for now, we thank you for listening to this episode of Ordinary Fellowship, a podcast ministry of Two Rivers Community Church. For more information about Two Rivers, you can find it on our website at www.tworiverscc.org. We look forward to your questions, your comments, and even that dreaded hate mail at OrdinaryFellowship at gmail.com. And please follow us on Facebook at Ordinary Fellowship and like and subscribe and rate us on whatever podcast service you're listening to us on. But for now, we thank you for listening to this episode of Ordinary Fellowship, where we're striving to have spiritual conversations for practical Christian living. <music>